Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Good afternoon, listeners. I'm sorry that Robert's not here today to tell you about all the wonderful things we're going to uh, give you uh, because he's uh, in England, but he'll be back in two weeks' time, uh, full of very interesting information from overseas, I'm sure. But uh, we have our usual today. We have a press release uh, number 783, and then we've got a very interesting uh, interview with Chris Bonner from New South Wales from the Save Our Schools group. He's up on the Hunter River at a conference, but he was prepared to give us a bit of time out uh, for 3CR. As well as that, we have some very interesting material uh, from the Save Our Schools group. Up uh, in Canberra, the Education Department has been slammed for a failure to monitor how school systems distribute taxpayer funding. How interesting. (laughs) Corruption, corruption, corruption. But, um, and then of course, I have to somehow stand in for Robert on this great schools uh, program. What I'm going to do is compare two schools in North Melbourne. I think that Errol Street, North Melbourne's a great school because my children and grandchildren have all gone there. Uh, It has some problems, obviously, but I'm concerned about a big business operation which is up in King Street, otherwise known as Haleybury. So we'll be chatting about those. But now to press release 783. The heading is Old Sectarian School Networks. Brazen and without shame. The ghost of Bob Santa Maria, the National Civic Council or the movement or the groupers, whichever you prefer, and the Catholic right are alive, well and out in front. The Catholic-inspired right-wing in Australian politics was the brainchild of Archbishop Mannix. The Victorian Archbishop determined to obtain the state aid for church schools they had lost in 1872. He worked out that the power in Australian politics lay in the middle, where the crossbench could blackmail whatever government was in power. Back in the day, the groupers, as they were called, divided the Labor Party in Victoria and Queensland, but took over and systematically dominated New South Wales Labor, and still do. At the federal level, they produced the DLP, which is now defunct pretty well. And in the last century, the old boy network strategically influenced key positions in the political, legal, academic and media elites. In recent times, the old boys have dominated the Liberal Party. And haven't they been having fun with Mr Abbott and Mr Andrews and Erica Betts and others? Although they're having their noses a bit out of joint with the get-up Uh, case down in Tasmania. But state aid to religious schools has skyrocketed all the while to the point that it's overtaken taxpayer payments to public schools. But just in case Catholic voters thought they should look to the Liberal Party to look after the Catholic sectarian interests, messages are being strategically issued from the old Labor Party stalwarts. After all, their great and fearless leader, Bill Shorten himself, is an old boy from Xavier. But on 14th of February, the Fairfax Press made official 
what had been scuttlebutt in the Murdoch press the week before with the announcement that a Labor senator from Victoria, Jacinta Collins, had resigned from Parliament and was heading to a leading role in the National Catholic Education Commission. David Crow from the Sydney Morning Herald had the following report. And if you want to go to our website, you can also read this report uh, with the um, inserted hyperlink. Labor Senator Jacinta Collins, he said, announced a surprise departure from the Upper House with a declaration that Christian social principles remain strong within her party despite talk of the waning of the Catholic right. Senator Collins, who is tipped to head the National Catholic Education Commission, used her valedictory speech to debunk the myth that she was one of a dying breed within Labor. Quote, she said, Those who come to our great party or broad church from a base of Christian social principles are not disappearing. In some respects, we are stronger than during some periods over the last two decades. Just look at the recent euthanasia debate. It serves the interests of some on the far left and the far right of politics to dismiss and diminish us, but I thank the many people across a wide spectrum who do not. Senator Collins has been one of the strongest voices within the party on social issues as well as a defender of federal funding for Catholic schools ahead of the federal government's offer of $4 billion to satisfy demands from private schools late last year. Her appointment as Executive Director of the NCEC, which is the National Catholic Education Commission, is expected to be announced on Friday last. Debates on religious freedom have often been led by Conservatives within the Liberal and National Parties, but Senator Collins used her speech to emphasise Labor's support for the same principle. She quoted a chapter in the party's national platform which states, Labor supports the appropriate protection of the religious freedom of all people. Well, isn't it a pity, dear listeners, that she doesn't support the principle of freedom from religion, that taxpayers should not have to pay a penny or a cent, if you like, towards the propagation of other people's beliefs? Now, Senator Collins also quoted a resolution moved by colleagues Christina Keneally. Uh, Christina Keneally from New South Wales, dear listeners, used to be a member of Opus Dei, and Louise Pratt at the party's national conference in December that the party stands for civil rights, including freedom of religion. So Senator Collins, whose term was due to expire on the 30th of June this year, is expected to be replaced on Labor's Victorian Senate ticket by Raf Ciccone, who's also, like she was, an official at the Shop Distributive and Allied Employees Association, which was the same union she worked for before entering Parliament. So she is going to be um, replaced by somebody from exactly the same background. So Jacinta Collins is following a well-worn path. Politician, then administrator, lobbyist. For example, Mr Elder from the Victorian Catholic Education Commission did his church schools proud after a stint as a state liberal politician. He is suffering a bullying complaint at the moment, but he's been rewarded with a role at the Catholic University. Public school supporters can be forgiven for wishing to vote Labor when Bill Shorten and Tanya Pibasek offer more dollars to the public sector, which they're doing. But make no mistake, before any desperately needed dollars flow through to the public sector, the private sector has been handsomely rewarded for their successful political network and brazen, self-interested lobbying. So that is our press release for this week, and you can go to www.adogs.info if you want to find out more about what the dogs are about and what our press releases have been in recent weeks. 
Uh, there's also material there on our High Court case. And we notice that a lot of the people who come to our, our site are looking at the High Court case. The dog's case, it's known. It's a very famous case on religious liberty, would you believe? But um, now we are going to go, after a little bit of music, to an interview with Chris Bonner. share the growing concern about racism, fascism and the move to the extreme right, come along to our forum on a Bill of Rights for Australia on Sunday the 17th of March at the Unitarian Church, 110 Gray Street, East Melbourne, commencing at 11am. Speakers include Professor Gillian Triggs, Professor Rob Watts, Julian Burnside QC and the Human Rights Law Centre. RSVP to admin at melbourneunitarian.org.au Our democratic rights are under threat. If you care, be there. The Melbourne Unitarian Peace Memorial Church is a 3CR supporter. Brunswick Music Festival, back for two weeks this March, featuring international acts, Flahio, Jay Mascus and Snail Mail, plus an epic local contingent including... Jazz Party, The Necks, Hey Swayze and the Ghosts, The Murlocs, Tando, Jade Imagine, Sophie Grophy, Genesis Owusu, Beck Sandridge, Hexdeath, and so much more. For the full program and tickets, head to brunswickmusicfestival.com.au. Brunswick Music Festival is a 3CR supporter. Well, welcome, Chris. It's a while since we had a chat, but um, you're very, very welcome on the Dogs Program. It's good to be back, Jean. So, it's about a couple of years since we chatted to you, but uh, what's your take on what's been happening in education in Australia in the last five years? In one sense, not very much has been happening because the problems that uh, were around five to eight years ago that have been analysed in the past have really been worsening. And that is a real worry. And I'm referring to things like, well, certainly international measures of student achievement, not that they're the only measures uh, worth considering, but, you know, school equity, um, are we lifting up the strugglers any more than we did a few years ago? All those sort of things show no sign of improving at all. And, of course, on the funding side, uh, we seem to be going from one stage of denial of what Gonski wanted into another stage. So there's, a, there's, in many ways, there's a lot of energy and activity, but not much has changed. 
tragedy, isn't it? Of course, we here at the Dogs have been saying that the needs policies have been a, a, a mistake for years and years because um, none of them have succeeded. Uh, they seem to be gamed all the time. Yeah, gee, we're not doing it. I mean, you know, everyone, everyone, we all believe in equity. We all believe in needs funding. But, you know, uh, it's like parenthood. You know, we all believe in parenthood. But the numbers show that we're not doing it. Now, we've increased expenditure on schools generally in the last half dozen years. But there's been no extra lift in the resourcing of the most needy students in Australia. Sure, it varies from state to state. But overall, they are just staggering along the way they've done in the past. Yes, perhaps we we really just like to kid ourselves here in Australia, I sometimes think, because we're not prepared to to confront um, politically and in a lot of other ways uh, the real problem. But, well, I suppose um, you, could, you could argue that at least, I suppose at one level, we at least acknowledge that equity has to be a very, very big priority. I think we've convinced everybody of that. Well, the rhetoric and the reality are poles apart, aren't they? Uh, You've just done some very interesting research. I mean, what we think the Save Our Schools people are doing is absolutely wonderful because you've got the facts and figures and you're getting them out there and you're even getting them into the mainstream media. Congratulations many times over. Yes, although, in fairness, uh, the Save Our Schools uh, research and advocacy comes from Especially, uh, well, from Trevor Cobbold. Yes. And uh, I'm not directly associated with him, but he is absolutely amazing because what he does is trawl through all the evidence yep. and produce, produce a consumable version of what uh, evidence in Australia and around the world is saying about things like uh, uh, public and private education and equity and funding and all that sort of thing. It's absolutely outstanding. My, my work is focused on the My School data. Yes. Which is really odd because the, 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 I mean, I had this love hate relationship with the My School mm-hmm. website. Understand. The data behind it. <laughs> well, yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> so do we. <laughs> well, well, you know, it was, it was funny. So it was set up by the Rudd Gillard government in this 30 year old mistaken belief that if you increase competition between schools, you're going to improve quality. Well, that was never the case. And it's not going to be the case. Oh, sure, you get the cosmetic improvements in schools, but not about the innate quality of schools. You don't improve it. All you do is drive students from one sort of school into another that looks better. Yeah. Well, it's ideology, isn't it? It's really economics um, ideology uh, going well, back to yeah. the 19... Well, it goes a long way back to Adam Smith, yeah. I suppose. But, uh, exactly right. But we've done that in force in the last three decades, haven't we? Uh, you know, a, a market type approach to, to education. Um, but the market hasn't lifted all boats. All the market has done is what markets do very, very well, and that's create winners and losers. But the losers are the kids through no fault of their own happen to be in the wrong location or born in the wrong family, you know, that sort of stuff. We can't afford to let that happen. That's correct. But, of course, I wish some of these ideologues would actually read Adam Smith because he was a great believer in public education. He thought all the children (laughs) should be educated, certainly to a certain standard, because that way you'd have at least an efficient army. Uh, He didn't like monopolies either. So (laughs) I wish they'd read Adam Smith just to get it right. And, of course, in the 19th century, public education was essential for the birth of democracy and the need to educate our whole population so that we could provide opportunities for all families in, a for, in an education system that was accessible to all. It was seem to have forgotten that. Oh, well, the old timers also understood that for public money you had to have proper accountability, otherwise you got corruption. <laughs> so they stopped oh, yeah. all funding to private schools or private enterprise, if you like, uh, because they wanted to find out where the money was going. Well, we're sure. halfway yeah. there to find out where the money's going, and it's not a pretty picture, is it? <laughs> well, the funny thing is now, the money in Australia is going, uh, is going to public schools but it's increasingly going to non-government schools to such an extent. If you look at a, a private school and a public school that enrol similar students, you know, students with similar backgrounds, if you look at two schools like that, the private school is giving 
Take in a other moment. Words, <laughs> in other words, well, 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 at the very least, we should be saying to the non-government sector, to the private sector, you're getting all this money. It's time you assume all the obligations that public schools have to meet. That's right. You must be available to all students. You mm. can't discard any. You yep. can't use school fees as a discriminator. Yep. We should be doing that. We should be doing it very, very quickly. Because if the figures go the way they've been going in the last five or six years, we are reaching the point where private schools will be getting, en masse, more government funding than government schools. Yes, that's right. Um, well, the Finns have got it uh, down to a T. You just make it illegal to charge fees. Well, well, these, that's right. These schools aren't even religious anymore. They're big business. I've just been looking well, at Haleybury this morning, and <laughs> it's big, big business. Well, in fact, the, 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 the funny thing here is that, is that as uh, each census shows a declining commitment to religion amongst the Australian population, a lot of these schools are downplaying their religious bases um, because they don't want to lose. Look, they want... They want the market of children that will pay the fees to go in. And we know very well that a substantial number of enrolment in Catholic schools, for example, are non-Catholic. What's the criteria? You must be able to pay. Correct. Yes, I think that it's time that we had a really big rethink about where we're going. And um, I think that you're, you're leading us that way. But I'd like to also uh, get you talking about the recent work you've done on the Indigenous children. Because yeah. that is a very sad and worrying story indeed. Look, um, what's happening is that, is that there's... I mean, we're segregating our school populations on a, at a number of levels. We're segregating them on SES, on, you know, on, on the wealth, family background, socio-educational advantage. Uh, we're segregating on that level. We're also segregating, um, probably unknowingly, or... or Put it this way, passively rather than actively, we're also segregating uh, Indigenous students um, on the basis of their SES. But you know, in, you know, the two the two levels cross over, don't they? SES and Indigeneity. Yep. While a large number of our Indigenous population are extremely uh, well placed, especially in the urban centres, and can can make choices about schools and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, a much larger number are still relatively in, in, in depressed situations and depressed communities. Now, what's happening, of course, is that they're going in increasing proportions to the schools with the least resources and the least capacity to lift them. Now, that's also an effective divide because they are the government schools. They overwhelmingly go to the government schools. Now, problem. And in fairness, I have to say about the private sector, they are doing their very best to increase the enrolment of Indigenous students, and they have done that. Mm. But the Indigenous students they are enrolling are by far those that are much better off in socio-educational and socio-educational terms. And we can measure that. So, you know, when a school boasts to me about how many Indigenous students uh, they enrol... I sort of nod my head, well, that's all very, very good. Uh, uh, which, which Indigenous students? And, and that is really the issue. So there's that, there's that sort of layer of, of, of uh, cultural racial background uh, uh, crossing over the socio-educational, or the yes, background as well to create a substantial division in the way we're enrolling students across our whole framework of schools. Yes. But it always gets back, doesn't it, um, to the political problem and the lobbyists uh, in Canberra at the moment. Uh, we've just discovered down here that Jacinta Collins, who is one of our Sen- Victorian senators, is leaving politics to become the head of the National Catholic Education Commission. Um, oh, yeah. So, the, to my mind because I go back to 1969, I suppose, the problem has always been a political one, getting the ear of the uh, people in power, such that the money at least flows to our public schools. Um, What do you think should be done here? Look, the big problem is that both political parties have been concentrating for two decades on reforming schools on the inside, 
and you know what goes on in schools. Getting the best quality teachers to, to uh, best quality principals to the struggling schools, and that's all a good thing. That's that's really great. Mm. <clears throat> but you know, you can parachute, you can parachute the best quality teachers into the most struggling schools, and their effect and their influence is going to be substantially limited. While ever going out the back door are your most aspirant and achieving students because movement of students between schools in Australia is in an upward direction, up the SES ladder. And what's happening is that our schools enrolling students who are already advantaged are growing, they're getting bigger and bigger, and they're concentrating their enrolment with students already advantaged. At the other end of the continuum, our struggling schools are increasingly, uh, their enrolment is increasingly of struggling students. Now, while ever we create this division between advantaged and disadvantaged schools um, in terms of who they enrol, it makes lifting the strugglers much, much, much harder. Where are the role models in those schools if you want students to focus on, you know, achievement, aspiration, and so on? They've gradually disappeared. You know, we tried to do something about this. Wyndham tried to do something about this in New South Wales in 1961. We had the opportunity with the comprehensive schools when they were going to do away with the selective schools in the state system and have comprehensive schools because it was a very tiered system until then. And the tragedy was, and Wyndham literally wept when state aid came in so that the middle class felt that they could buy out of the comprehensive school system. But some of those schools were wonderful. They really were. Yeah, and I, I grew up in rural New South Wales. I went to the local school, as did everybody. You mm. know, you'd go to school and you'd be there with the, the children of the solicitors and the shopkeepers and everybody else. Mm. Um, and even in, even in rural Australia, that's increasingly harder to find. Because even in middle-sized regional centres, there are probably half a dozen schools with special labels and so on, and they segregate, they separate out enrolment, essentially, essentially by parent income. Yes, well, we thought that when we settled Australia in the 19th century that we'd lost the top of the English aristocracy and that wasn't necessarily a bad thing. <laughs> now we seem to have all these aspirational um, plutocrats that want to somehow recreate a very stratified society. It's very sad, well, we, are, isn't it? Yeah, we, we are doing that in our schools. We're recreating social class in our schools. Now, don't get me wrong, social class in Australia is a very, is a very complex uh, 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 concept, you know, generalisations can often come unstuck. Oh, but yes, very fluid indeed. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely <laughs> it is. But we are certainly, if, if the MySchool data is in the indication, we are increasingly replicating social class in our schools. And then our schools, in a sense, become agents, agents for establishing those, those boundaries between people that are struggling and people that are well off. Yes. And that's not yes. a good, and that's not, and of course there's an ethnic division going on there too. If you look at the selective schools in New South Wales, for example, there are substantially a non-Anglo population in those schools, whereas the high fee schools that quite often are close by are substantially an Anglo population. We don't need that. Our problem, public school uh, advocates' problem, as I've always seen it, is in fact, um, that the middle class are always great fighters, particularly for their children. So it's actually very important to keep um, these middle class parents in our public system so that they will fight. Um, back, at, back in the day, it was often people who'd come through that selective system and who'd come up against at university and elsewhere, the people from the uh, private sector, who said, no, we're going to fight for our public schools. Mm-hmm. So we, we need actually to keep the parents, the middle class parents who are prepared to fight in our public schools and we're actually attracting them back again. They're working out that oh, <laughs> it's a waste yeah. of money well, to, well, to go education. to some of these well, pretentious places. There's no advantage to education. If you're comparing a government and a non-government school which enrolls students with similar backgrounds, the results coming out of those schools are almost identical. You know, there's very, very little difference. And look, research after research shows that. So the label of a school is public or private by itself, uh, doesn't make a difference to student outcomes. And, you know, getting back to parents, you know, we don't blame. If, if 
started in of course in, in 1969 as, as we see it and um, our, our view from the dogs is that you have to go back and learn from your history the people back in the 19th century worked it out that um, it's it's actually inefficient and uneconomic at the very base let alone oh, stupid to, um, oh, to, to uh, boost up a private system which divides our children it's, well, it's getting more and more expensive year by year <laughs> Well, for the whole country, because what you yep. end up, you end up duplicating provisions. Correct. Yep. The duplication argument. Yeah, it often is what schools The funny thing is, Jean, that the, the funding of non-government schools has risen so much that remember the, the Goulburn spike in 1961? Yeah. When the bishops the, the wanted more money for Catholic schools, and they said, the, government, the state government said no, and the bishops said, OK, you can have our kids. And, 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 and then they and didn't the state, want to go back to the Catholic schools, you know. Well, well, There's another well, story to that one. Well, <laughs> well, well the, point, well, the point is, in, in, in 2017, when I last did the, did the calculations, if they did that today, sent all their kids in Goulburn Catholic schools to the government schools, governments combined federal and state would save, in recurrent funding, $100,000 a year. That's right. In other words, you know, it's right. cheaper for governments that's what happened in government schools where you get economies of scale and you don't get yep. duplication of schools yep. uh, to, to have them in one system. That's right. Um, and, <laughs> I mean, you, could, you couldn't have predicted that three or four decades ago. Oh, yes, you could. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, you probably you could. did. I, I, yes, wash my mouth out. You probably did. <laughs> mm, mm. Yes, because it happened It happened in the 19th century and it was going to happen again, but it was actually happening even when they gave state aid, particularly in country or, or small small areas where they were yeah. dividing the children um, and it was very sad indeed. Um, yeah, and it was yeah. uneconomic and stupid. Uh, but, well, I've, um, done that I've done that calculation yeah. in South Wales country town yeah. and I worked out that in the 70s, 70s, 70s towns, if they closed down the smaller schools, There'd be a great saving, great, and, and the improvement in the educational provision would be would be commensurable. Also, yeah, I suggest. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. We've been here before. I'm just waiting. <laughs> <laughs> as as a historian, I suppose I'm just waiting for the penny to drop. And save our schools are doing a terrific job with the uh, facts and figures because that's the way it was done in the 19th century. Uh, the penny drops eventually. This is madness. And of course we're falling behind politician. the international Joneses. It won't, it won't drop with the politicians there because what both, political, what both main political parties do at least, yeah. they avoid these issues like the plague. Yeah. And uh, it's too, they see it as too divisive and they see no electoral advantage. I'm not convinced they're right on that. I think it would be an electoral advantage in re-examining our whole framework of school properly, objectively, and saying, what does it deliver? What are the problems? And how can we really make improvements, not only within schools, but in the whole framework of the schools yeah. and, and within communities? Yeah. Well, you know, um, I spent some time in the bureaucracy, in policy and policy and planning and legislation and so on. And when I was asked about a, a certain job, I said, well, you know, um, you should really appoint me here because... Uh, it's my job to tell truth to power, and I'm not frightened of anybody. <laughs> that was a fun, that was a really fun um, interview that I had. But I still contend that you have to tell truth to power, and I think Save Our Schools is doing a great job. Um, you've got to get back to the facts and the figures, and away from the, the rhetoric to the reality. And the penny eventually will drop. We're in an era where nobody bothers with the facts anymore. 
Yeah. <laughs> oh, we're in that era now, aren't we? In many ways. So that's another, that's another hurdle, isn't it? Yes, yes. It is. At the end of the day, we are in a democracy and, and it is a political uh, problem. Mm-hmm. So... Thank you so much for all the work you're doing up there in New South Wales, and we battle on. It's a battle worth uh, worth fighting, isn't it? We great do call, a great and it's cause. Lovely, it's lovely to talk to you again. Yes, yes. Bye. Bye. Landlord is coming. The landlord is coming. Do you want more hag in your life? The Housing for the Aged Action Group show is changing time slot and will be coming to you twice a month from 5.30 to 6 o'clock on the second and fourth Wednesday of the month here on 3CR. That means twice as much news and information about older people's housing issues, including public housing, tenants' rights, housing activism, retirement villages and caravan parks, elder abuse and family violence, aged care, welfare rights, the cost of living, and housing issues for older people with disabilities from culturally diverse backgrounds, LGBTI elders, and other groups in the community. And we'll be hearing from the real experts on older people's housing, older older people people themselves. themselves. So tune in for The Hag Show, 5.30 to 6 on the second and fourth Wednesday of the month, starting March 13th, here on 3CR. Marxism 2019 is Australia's biggest socialist conference, taking place this Easter long weekend from April the 18th to the 21st in Melbourne. Marxism 2019 features international and local guest speakers, including award-winning author and activist Baruz Buchani. Join over 1,000 activists for crucial discussions on how to resist the rise of the right and rebuild the left. With more than 100 sessions, tickets start at just $35 and are available at marxismconference.org. A 3CR supporter. Well, here we are back on the Dogs Program. I'd like now to talk to you about the notion of accountability. We hear continually, uh, particularly in an election year, how billions and billions and billions of dollars of our taxes are used uh, for services. Some of them are for education, some are for health. And now politicians are out with all the goodies, uh, selling their, or trying to get votes. We call it... Um, Uh, Well, we call it all sorts of things, don't we? (laughs) But the plain fact of the matter is that taxpayer funding, which is used on services or for various reasons, needs to be accounted for. Otherwise, you have corruption. And we've had a lot of royal commissions which deal with corruption because, in fact, the direct accounting for public monies is no longer direct. It can't be direct if you contract out services to private enterprise. And billions of dollars every year are being contracted out to education services, namely religious systems of schools, or so-called religious systems of schools, because a lot of them are run like businesses these days. Now, the group that monitor this, and we still do have this in our democracy, is the Auditor-General, the Audited Office. And there's been concern for a long time about what has been going on with education funding. And you can see from the MySchool website and you can see from, uh, or you can hear from what Chris Bonner has just been talking about, what we are dealing with. But we now find that the Joint Committee of Public Accounts and Audit of the Parliament has slammed the Commonwealth Department of Education for failing to ensure that government funding of private school systems, also one public school system, is distributed according to needs-based principles. In a bipartisan report tabled in Parliament last week, the Joint Committee criticised a lack of transparency and accountability about school funding caused by inadequate administrative arrangements. So this is a joint committee of public accounts and audit of the parliament. So I assume that it's uh, parliamentarians, but they are backing up the audit report of 2017. 
because there was a report on the monitoring of the impact of Australian government school funding by the National Audit Office in 2017. And the Joint Committee has in fact endorsed, endorsed the findings of this Audit Office report. And dogs are delighted that finally the Auditor-General did what they'd been asking them to do for 50 years. And there's been several state Auditor-Generals who have done the same thing and indicated great concern that, that funding that is supposed to be going on a needs base is not going on a needs base to the disadvantaged schools in the various religious sectors. The Audit Office had previously found that only two of 25 private school systems had published their needs-based funding arrangements, while seven of the eight state departments had done so for public schools. And the Joint Committee report, uh, backing up this Audit Office report, says that public reporting of the funding models of school systems is critical I would think it was, to supporting transparency requirements under the Act because there is, in fact, an Education Act which requires transparency. So uh, there's a mess. There has been a mess ever since 1960, certainly since 1973. Dogs have to say that Fraser for all his faults when he was the Minister for Education, made sure that you could get the correct funding information. Uh, in those days, we didn't have websites, but we did have uh, booklets, and you could find out where the money was going to which school. But then after 1973, it became almost impossible. Since uh, 2013, however, on the My School website, you can see... Quite a lot, not everything, not everything by a long shot, but quite a lot about where our taxpayer funding is going. And when you pay substantial tax, and some of us do, don't we listeners, it is very nice to find out where those taxes are going. In fact, it is democratically essential that we should have that information. Now, this um, joint committee... Uh, was also concerned that the Department of Education in Canberra was not adequately measuring progress against the achievement of policy directions and objectives. And they noted that the Australian Government uh, should amend the Australian Education Act of 2013, which is an, uh, has a needs-based policy attached to it, and the accompanying regulation is required to provide a specific legislative requirement that the Department of Education and Training monitor compliance and provide assurance that Australian government school funding is delivered in accordance with the Act. As well as that, the uh, non-government school um, funding should also be delivered in accordance with the Act. So... Uh, there is sensitivity in Canberra, sensitivity amongst some of the politicians in Canberra that the marvellous work being done by Save Our Schools uh, to prove that, in fact, the needs-based funding policy is a sham should be at least corrected so that it looks a little bit better. Um, However, they do say, and I find this very interesting, that the principle of transparency and accountability for the use of taxpayers' funds by school systems should be inviolate. Yes, in a democracy, dear listeners, it should be. That is one of the basic principles of a democracy, that there is accountability for public funding, whatever that public funding is, for uh, they say that the transparent and accountable administration of Commonwealth funding is integral to the way the Australian Government supports the critical areas of education and health so the Parliament and the Australian public can be assured of the effectiveness of government programs. Well, the rhetoric is there. We're waiting, of course, for the reality to appear. Listeners... There can't be a reality 
of accountability while you have government funding going to private contractors. It's just not possible. And the Catholic education officers have certainly proved that. But um, I'll now turn you over to Dale. There was a comment posted on the Save Our Schools website in response to this information. Over to Dale. Thanks, Jean. Uh, The comment uh, begins thus. Proper accountability for public money is the most fundamental principle for a democracy or any government that wants to minimise corruption for that matter. Our 19th century forefathers knew this. They demanded accountability and inspection of religious schools in the 19th century. The religious men did not want to give up power in return for taxpayer funds, so the Catholic bishops went out in the cold for what they thought would be a short time. It turned out to be 80 years before they got sufficient political clout, by fair means or foul, to get the taxpayer money back with few strings attached. Admittedly, under Fraser, as Minister for Education in the late 1960s, there were some figures publicly available, but under the Schools Commission, they got very rubbery. And the public could not trace billions of dollars until Gillard's My School hit our screens. Then, bingo, we have some inkling of the mess. And these figures only deal with direct funding, not taxation expenditures, taxation exemptions or endowments and asset ownership. But anyone with eyes to see can observe the inequalities. The answer is simple. Go back to our forefathers. In a wide brown land like Australia, geography dictates that basic services must be nationalised, publicly funded and publicly accountable through centralised bureaucracy answerable to Parliament. And ministerial responsibility should actually mean something. Otherwise, we will have royal commission after royal commission exposing more and more corruption and less and less solutions. The education of Australia's children is too important to be contracted out to corrupt administrations. The fact that they are religious administrations with an extraordinary record of child abuse, not to mention misappropriation of public money, makes this situation even more improper. Let's get back to the real basics of running a democracy and learn from our own history. Otherwise, dot, dot, dot. Well, thank you very much uh, for that, um, Dale. Well, we'll have a little break and then we'll go into state schools are great schools. Camp Anarchy is on over the long weekends, March 9th to 11th at Camp Eureka in Yarra Junction. The aim is to bring anarchists, families, friends and those interested together. Come share ideas, skills, food, music and laughter. There is a bunch of radical workshops and skill shares over the weekend. Check out our website, campanarchy.org or contact us on info at campanarchy.org or via the Anarchist Events Facebook page. Camp Anarchy is a 3CR supporter. Every week on the Doctor Program we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. State schools are great schools. School of the week. State school. School of the week. Great state schools. State schools. School of the week. School for the week here on the Dogs Program. Oh, well, here we are back, listeners, with... State schools are great schools, and I'd like to talk about a great school at North Melbourne, at Errol Street, North Melbourne. Years ago, it was actually given to the department by uh, private school operators uh, years and years ago. It's in a very interesting position just down from Parkville, and there's a, a huge pipe goes under it, taking the water out to um, the Yarra Yarra River, would you believe, because we arrived at school one Monday morning to find the uh, playground was a swimming pool, a wash. That's how we find out, found out. 
so, uh, it, but it was, it, it's a lovely school. It was built in the 19th century and uh, it used to be uh, a school for about 250 300 students because there were two other public schools in the area, one at West Melbourne and one at Boundary Road. But Mr Kennett closed Boundary Road and West Melbourne. So this little school has to cater for a very large area and it currently has 743 students. But because uh, the aspirational classes have moved into the inner city, its ICSIA value is 1,153. So it has some quite wealthy parents uh, sending their children to this school. Uh, it has uh, 45 full-time equivalent teaching staff and... 15 non-teaching staff, but they are, they are only really uh, 10 full-time jobs, so some of them are part-time. It doesn't have many children from the lowest quartile uh, economically, even though it does service the uh, North Melbourne, big, the big North Melbourne flats. 4% of the children are in the lowest quartile. In the middle quartile, you have 27%, and in the highest quartile, you've got 69%. Uh, and the private contribution per student in this school is $545 a year. So the parents are putting money into the school. And they actually need to because altogether, per head, per capita, the students are receiving from the government 9,256, which is well below the 14,000, which is required. So um, they're doing reasonably well on their NAPLAN tests and um, they have quite a lot of new building that had to be put in to cater for the 743 students in a, in a, uh, a school that's only supposed to be for 250 but they do have rather nice grounds up on the Parkville end. They have a, an oval and an after-school program. So uh, North Melbourne is a great school. It has a wonderful history. It has had a lot of very dedicated, wonderful teachers in its time. It was uh, one of the, the schools in the 1980s that welcomed children with a disability and it's had some wonderful teachers and principals over the years, as well as having some very dedicated parents working for it. So that is North Melbourne. But you go up the street, where are the other schools? There are private schools. There is a, uh, a Catholic school, and I haven't done the work on that because I'm particularly interested in a school which is really a big business. Two or three years ago... Haleybury came into West Melbourne, just up from the old West Melbourne school, which was taken over by the um, Salvos for a, a, a home for homeless men some time ago. It was given to them by Mr Kennett. But Haleybury came in further up the road in King Street and bought a huge building for, listen to this, $52 million. You're dealing with a business, aren't you, even though it's supposed to be religious, a uniting church school. Uh, it has over 4,200 students all up, and it has four sites in Melbourne, Brighton, Berwick, Keysborough, and this one in the CBD. It also has a campus at Wuxing, just outside of Beijing, China, and a partner campus in Halebury Rendell School in Darwin. And they say that they want to develop high-achieving students, and they really scout about anybody who gets a good attar. Uh, but it isn't exactly co-ed yet. Boys and girls, they say, benefit from learning in their early years, uh, so they are together until year four. But from years 5 to 12, 
Boys and girls attend separate schools on the same sites. I don't know how they're going to do that in uh, King Street, but that'll be interesting. But listen to this. The average class sizes in the senior school in 2016 was 11 students. They have 4,200 students, as I've said. They've got 425 teachers. So 425 into 4,200 is, you know, almost one for 10, isn't it? And they have 212 non-teachers. So they've got to pay all these people and keep up all these wonderful buildings because um, Haleybury is a very, very wealthy school indeed. Uh, Their recurring income every year, or certainly in 2016-17, was $102 Nearly 102 million, 101.3, shall we say. And the expenses or the recurrent income per student is very close to 29,000. Now, of that 101 million, uh, more than 20 million, probably 22 million, uh, is uh, from us taxpayers. Uh, but how much? This 29,000 a student down in Haleybury. Compare that with 9,256 just up the road. I I suspect that a child going to Haleybury is no better off than one going down to Errol Street. Uh, In in fact, I know that's the case from experience. But uh, I thought that you would be very interested to know this. Their capital expenditure for 2014 to 2016, was $81 million. This is big business. And yet, this is the Uniting Church that was selling off its little schools because the school up at Mernda went bust a few years ago. Uh, it makes you wonder, doesn't it? Uh, but I thought that uh, that would interest some of our listeners. But our time is long gone, so it's bye for now from Dale and I, and we recommend our website at www.adogs.info. I dreamed I saw Joe Hill last night, alive as you and me. Says I, but Joe, you're ten years dead. I never died, says he. I never died, says he. In Salt Lake City, Joe, says I, I'm standing by my bed. They framed you on a murder charge, says Joe, but I'm dead, says Joe, but I'm dead. The copper bosses killed you, Joe, they shot you, Joe, says I, takes more than guns to kill a man. Says Joe, I didn't die. Says Joe, I didn't die. And standing there as big as life, and smiling with his eyes, says Joe, what they can never kill, went on to organize. Went on to organize From San Diego up to Maine In every mine and mill Where workers strike and organize It's there you find your hill It's there you find i